Joined now by Paris Marks, host of the Tech Won't Save Us podcast and author of the book Road to Nowhere about the Talking Heads Little Creatures album. Excellent. No, I'm just kidding. Road to Nowhere is about how Silicon Valley is destroying our transportation systems. It's an excellent book, which everyone can purchase right now. Uh, Averso, I guess, is the preferred way to purchase it. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. And they, they always have some discounts, you know. I, I would say I, a number of people have brought up the talking heads to me uh, <laughs> because of the title of the book. And I still haven't actually gone and listened to, <laughs> to the oh. song. <laughs> well, okay. I, yeah, I knew it was a shitty that. joke. I knew it was a shitty joke when I did it, but I'm a I'm a huge Talking Heads fan, so I couldn't okay. <laughs> I couldn't resist it. And it's an excellent song if you ever uh, uh, are uh, cruising Spotify. I should um, finally do that it, later. Yeah, and it's relevant because there was recent reporting on David Byrne being uh, anti-union. Oh yes, <laughs> I'm sorry to say uh, that is true. He does not like to work with union artists, which he says gets in the way of his creativity. Which, uh, you know, what we can we can we can cancel David Byrne on another show. <laughs> um, totally fine with that. He avoids but the for this show this week. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, yeah, anyone's free to nominate him and bring it up for a, a motion uh, to discuss. Uh, we won't shoot it down, but. Uh, for now, uh, we're happy to talk with you, Paris. Uh, I've, I've been following your work for a while. Um, SK and I have been kind of lazy about getting guests on the podcast, and we're trying to get better about that. And this is the first time we've had a guest on in a while. And uh, I figured uh, you're the best guest for this week, which also happens to correspond with the 10-year anniversary of Uber coming to Washington, D.C. And... Big celebrations, I'm sure. Yeah, huge celebrations. Um, I'm sure Sam Knight has some, you know, horror stories he might want to share. I just know that a few weeks ago I had a meltdown on the streets of D.C. over Uber. I just gone and seen Oppenheimer with my wife and we went to the late showing and it was you know it's a long ass movie and the air conditioning wasn't working in the theater and it was like a pretty miserable fucking experience that i continued to sit through through three hours instead of just being like i'll come back another time um so we get out and it's really late and i don't feel like taking like a metro across town and then walking so i'm like let's just you know we'll just uber home and you pull up the fucking app and it's like so glitchy now all the time you'll try and search for a car and it will take minutes to five to ten minutes still searching searching and you don't know okay should i cancel it and try again don't know what to do and then i just remember how easy it was when i first moved to dc 10 years ago if you stepped outside there were just cabs like everywhere and you just walk out and you hail a cab and sure there were problems with cabs um but and, and maybe it's just like the whatever it is, like nostalgic thoughts you just think better of. But it seems so much better. I wasn't you know, at mercy of this fucking app that doesn't work half the time. The prices are now the same. It's not any cheaper to take uh, an Uber. And I just well, feel yeah, like the world... they need to turn a profit, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there was point. a time. Yeah, there was a there was a chance where like taxis could have incorporated some technology that would have made it easier to use their service. But instead, the world diverged onto this different path that we're now fully on today that's spread into all industries. Um, I don't know. 
what's 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 your take on how how Uber has destroyed the world over the last ten years, Paris? <laughs> I, I definitely think it has uh, helped to d- destroy the world. I, I would say I don't think we should completely write off taxis yet. You know, I remember that there were there was reporting um, during the pandemic about people kind of going back to taxis because it became so much harder to find Ubers and the prices went up so much again because they were trying to, you know, make a profit, right? Because the kind of conditions had changed and all of a sudden investors didn't just want them to lose a ton of money to gain market share, but to finally start showing that they could actually, you know, deliver some degree of revenue, right? And so we saw that. And I would say that I um, am actually not an Uber user. I've never signed up for Uber. I figure with the writing that I do, like it would be very hypocritical if I if I did that. So I still use cabs when I need them. And I find that like the cabs in larger cities that I have used have integrated a lot of kind of Uber's technologies and features. Like you can use an app to book an Uber, or you can use an app to book a cab and you can see in some cities where that cab is at the time that you book it. Um, and usually like you don't have to wait too long is my experience um and and i've even found them to be like cheaper than i expected um you know the taxis right and so i would say that i i think i think taxis aren't dead yet and i think that you know we can we can still bring them back if we choose to and of course i don't know the situation in dc i've never used a taxi there to be honest well Um, i i I can tell you one minor horror story anecdote from the the long before times is that DC cabs at one point they weren't even metered so they would have these zones sometimes a driver would be like oh there's traffic I gotta take a diversion and we're like man you just want to go through like three more zones like how do I know (laughs) this is you know so that is an example of how it was uh uh, suboptimal, but now that I'm talking about it, I'm almost like a little nostalgic for it. Like, you know, if you knew your way around the city, you're like, no, don't go there, go there, you know, and like, just but the app is such else- a nightmare. But like, nobody, I mean, you hear it a lot in, 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 you know, left circles about the sort of nostalgia for cabs, but like, why isn't that ubiquitous? Why, why, why aren't people everywhere just realizing how much better things were? And maybe that's, bias of being in a city like if you were in a smaller city where cabs weren't as ubiquitous as they were like in dc where they're just driving on and all over the place it has made things a little better and i know that there are certain maybe maybe better's not i don't know but there are certain arguments to be made about people with disability issues now having like easier access to transportation as a result of this but these are all things that could have been developed absent of what uber's business model has been over the last decade yeah and and i would say like if uber operates there at all right um we know that uber doesn't operate in like every kind of smaller community um and we also know that uber has recently been pulling back on some of its kind of broader scale of operations especially in um you know kind of less dense parts of larger cities where it's not as profitable for them to be operating and they've been kind of refocusing on downtowns and things like that where there's a much denser degree of ridership um that's something that the company has been talking about recently in its kind of financial statements and reports right as it tries to turn a profit um you know i'm from a smaller community in canada called st john's you know it's about uh, 150 200,000 people and it doesn't have uber and there's even been campaigns to like bring uber there but it won't 
launch, or at least it hasn't yet. Right. And I'm like, no, the problem isn't that we need Uber. The problem is just like, we need to fix the cab system that we have now, if we want this to work properly. Right. And I think that when you're thinking about Uber, like it really burst onto the scene, you know, what in 2008, 2009. Um, and it took advantage of the fact that a lot of people had lost their jobs um, so that it could kind of take advantage of this precarious workforce that would not make a lot of demands on them because they needed a lot of money to launch this service to rival first black cabs, but then moving into chat or, you know, black cars and then moving into challenging taxis themselves, right? Especially as Lyft launched and, and was more of like a taxi competitor and then Uber expanded into that area. And so then you had about a decade where Uber was happy to lose money hand over fist, billions of dollars a year in many cases, just to gain market share and then to underprice its service in comparison to taxis to make it look like it was more efficient than, you know, the model that existed before when, as Hubert Horan, a transportation consultant who's been covering Uber, you know, for, for years and has a really long running series on naked capitalism, digging into their financials has shown, you know, they're really not more efficient at all because they have these expensive headquarters. They have these expensive kind of tech, um, you know, engineers that need to be developing all these tools. And then they just take advantage of the drivers and make sure that they are kind of paying conditions are worse. And that is part of where they get their savings. So the actual model isn't better. And so now what we see is Uber is trying to pivot to make enough money. So you're seeing the service get more expensive. You're seeing you know, access to these vehicles become, you know, harder than it has been in the past. And one of the things that Uber says is that it's doing well in this moment in particular and not having as many driver shortages as it expected is because, you know, people, drivers are flooding back to the app, even though the conditions aren't very good for it. And that's because the economy is in like kind of a shit place, you know, despite all, you know, kind of the the talk about how, how good it's going right now under the Biden administration, if you watch like MSNBC or something. Um, but things are really difficult for a lot of people because inflation has been has been going up, interest rates are going up. So people are paying more for their mortgages and stuff. And so people need, even though like wages have been going up in some sectors as well, a lot of people still need kind of extra income in order to cover the bills. And then you turn to these gig platforms like Uber in order to try to do that. So Uber is benefiting from that because they are not having the labor challenges that they expected because the economy is in a shit position like it was in 2008, 2009 when they were taking off and were founded. I, I also want to say in terms of um, taxi convenience, like anecdotally, it seems that it used to be relatively easy to call a dispatcher and have them send a taxi to you. And now that uh, taxi cabs have lost significant market share, it's it's not it's not so easy. Like I will call, and sometimes I've tried calling a taxi dis dispatcher, and they just don't pick up. And that was just like in in the two thousand early two thousands nineties, like that just didn't happen. They would they would be on it, and they would send someone to you, and it might not happen like for twenty twenty five minutes, but. You know, if it was like a regularly scheduled thing or something you knew you needed to be done, this was this was a relatively reliable service. Um, yeah, I, I, and I think that paratransit was was somewhat included in that, and I, I don't know, but yeah, I, you know, I think just to add to what you're saying, like a lot of the taxi companies would have fewer cars than they did in the past because you know it's harder for drivers to support themselves as taxi drivers when they have to compete with Uber and the thing to remember is that 
you know, taxis were highly regulated. There was a certain number of taxis that were allowed to operate in a city because then, you know, drivers were making enough money. There wasn't too much congestion and people could still generally access taxis. And, you know, maybe we could argue that the balance was off there in some places where it became too hard to access a taxi. And that was difficult. Um, but the Uber model comes in and it has succeeded in carving itself out of those taxi regulations and ensuring that it can have unlimited drivers, right? There, there's no kind of limit on the number of people that it can usually have on cities. There's some um, cities where regulations have been starting to come in to try to limit those things, but in general, it's kind of a free-for-all, right? And so there have been reports that show that it has added quite a bit of congestion, like traffic congestion to cities as well. Um, but to pick up on what you're saying, like my experience in still using taxis is that depends on the time of day, the company that you're calling i feel like when you go to a city you need to find like the company that is going to be reliable and that you can trust uh like you know i i recently moved to to montreal and so there was one company i was calling i could never get through to them when i could get through to them they were like sorry we can't get you a cab right now um but then i started using a co-op company instead and they picked up and they're usually pretty good on getting me a cab when I need one. You know, I don't use cabs that often, but like, that's kind of just a general experience that I've, you know, I've used cabs in, in many cities in the past year. Um, and I think one thing I would add just to what both of you were saying around disabilities and, and access to transportation for people with disabilities is that, you know, one of Uber's big marketing lines is that it was going to make it more accessible for people on lower incomes and people with disabilities to access transportation. But one thing we know about Uber and Lyft is since their founding, they have been fighting being included in the Americans with Disabilities Act because they argue that they are a technology company, not a transportation company. So where taxis are covered by that and need to provide service for people with disabilities, people in wheelchairs and things like that. Uber is not covered by the same rules because it has fought them um, consistently through its history. And so what we find is that people in wheelchairs often have a harder time getting access to services through Uber because there's a specific service set aside for um, those types of needs. And usually it's much more difficult to actually find a ride through that you know, kind of offshoot service than it is through the regular Uber service. So yeah, another more bullshit from the company. And you mentioned how it's causing more congestion in cities. And I remember that study from a few years ago that talks about how ride sharing, despite its name, which would imply that you're somehow taking fewer rides off the road, is actually worse for the environment because you're having all these people idling their cars all the time uh, waiting for new new fares. Um, uh, so this, this idea that Uber is now uh, profitable one, how how reliable is that claim? Is the company profitable? Does this news mark the, I guess, the the accomplishment that investors had been hoping for for decades that you would eventually get to this point, that it wouldn't be just this never ending burn? Have we has the company finally turned a corner there or is this just kind of a, a fluke and people are going to still have to keep chasing money to keep keep Uber viable, particularly now that it looks like you're not going to have robot drivers anytime soon uh, <laughs> taking over the entire fleet of Uber cars. No, absolutely not. Um, I would say that uh, it certainly shows that some of the 
um, cost-cutting measures that they've been putting into place have been relatively effective, right? The things that I was talking about and kind of pairing back the service areas that they were kind of operating under. It's not to say you can't still get an Uber vehicle in some of these further out areas and less dense areas, but it might take longer than it did in the past because they'll have less operations there. Um, you also saw them raise prices, of course. So they're reducing the subsidy that they provide on rides. They are taking a greater cut of the customer fare. So you know, it used to be that the drivers got a certain percentage of what the customer paid. Now that is unlinked. So um, like the, the amount the driver gets is unlinked from the amount the customer pays and Uber has increased the cut that it takes from those fares. Um, and so what we see is that Uber has been claiming on and off that it's been profitable for a while. And that was usually based on its kind of um, very untrustworthy use of accounting practices um, that a lot of people called out for not being accurate. But this latest claim is based on kind of gap accounting principles, which is kind of the generally accepted one. So this is why they're saying like, we've finally done it, right? Um, but Hubert Horan, as I mentioned, who has been digging into this company for years, always goes through its financials, like every quarter when it releases them, went through its latest financials where it claims that it's profitable and basically found that the main reason that this happened is that it um, registered a gain on shares that it has in Didi and, and other companies to suggest that it's making more money on those. And it's not clear that that's actually the case. So whether it is actually kind of technically profitable right now, you know, I would say is hard to say for sure. Um, but the thing that Hubert Horn has been pointing to for many years that I think is important to understand is that when Uber says that it's doing better financially, that is always because it's taking more money from its drivers, right? It's ensuring that they get less of the money that comes into the service than you know they used to get in the past. And I can't believe, I, I can't remember the exact numbers, but it's something like before the pandemic, I believe in 2019, Uber was getting about 21% of the customer fare. I think that it's 21 or 22%. Now I believe it gets 28, 29%. And that is that's the equivalent of many billions of dollars that Uber has has gained by um ensuring that drivers get less money than they did in the past. Having lived through, and maybe I hope this isn't too expansive of a question, but I just, you know, we have all lived through two sort of tech bubbles, uh, for lack of a better term. It seemed like the dot-com bubble was more about people um, trying to make things that were actually useful. And the current one is sort of like, how can we use tech principles to subvert regulation to... Uh, make it easier for capital, et cetera. And like tech just seems to be trending like more and more evil. And like, how do you, how do we deal with that Paris? Like how, like <laughs> I'm just feeling a little bit of despair thinking about 10 years since Travis Kalanick also, came mean, to also DC. Why? Right. Like what, what's, what explains this sort of shift that you've seen toward, I mean, there there was this idea of like Silicon Valley and and kind of traditional liberal politics of of the '90s and early 2000s, and now it's been increasingly associated with reactionary right wing politics. 
Oh, that's a deep question. And I, I could go in so many directions with it. So I, I think I would say this. I think we shouldn't kind of romanticize the dot-com boom era, right? Sure. Um, I think in that moment, you were still seeing a lot of companies that were basically just trying to cash in on the fact that the internet had been privatized in 1995 by the Clinton administration. And all of a sudden, there was this massive opportunity to make a lot of money. So a bunch of companies just piled into the internet and were trying to do like whatever they could think of. Of, um, in order to get money off of investors and hope that they would be able to cash out before everything kind of collapsed, right? And Malcolm Harris in his recent book, Palo Alto, kind of argues that um, the big thing that the tech industry learned from the dot-com boom and bust was to keep doing this over and over and over again, because as long as you get out when the you're at kind of the top of the bubble, then you'll keep making money as an investor and stuff, right? And so that's why we keep seeing these kind of boom and bust cycles in the tech industry where there's always a new product that's being hyped up and then that crashes and then there's something new and there's not much that actually get comes out of those things in in many cases, right? I have to say, it feels like Mark Andreessen is a guy who really personifies that well because he made it a Netscape in the 90s and you know, his most recent contribution to tech just seems to be at like whatever short-termist, for lack of a better term, current thing he can think of. And it's it's ironic because like the current thing is like a meme that like right-wing techno guys like to use a lot to be like, oh, these, these woke SJWs are obsessed with the current thing. Well, they are currently going from like, crypto to nfts to ai and everything that they're talking about in the moment is like going to fucking change the game like you will never believe and then like a few fiscal quarters go by and they just pretend like they never talked about it totally <laughs> and and at the same time as they're like taking these very short-term kind of investing practices and and kind of continuing this kind of boom and bust cycle they claim to be long-termists and they're thinking about like the long-term future of society right and so to pick up on your question on kind of the right-wing nature of the politics of silicon valley and how that has evolved i think that there's two things to say about that right i think on one hand we shouldn't um miss the fact that right-wing politics have a long, long, long history in Silicon Valley and in the current uh, kind of spate of, of tech industry figures in particular, right? You go back to the founding of Stanford University and it's basically like you see the eugenicist principles right there from the very beginning. And then that is kind of a, a through line, eugenics and racism and stuff through the high tech industries, through Silicon Valley as it evolves through the 20th century, right? This never really goes away. It just kind of has its kind of peaks and ebbs and, and whatnot, right? Steve um, Jobs famously hated unions of course. Of course, of course. Um, and, and that is kind of built into the culture going back to Hewlett Packard, right? Hewlett Packard gives shares to its employees. That is like kind of a novel thing. And the idea is that by doing that, um, they are not going to demand to be unionized because they are kind of participating in the profits of the company or, or as the company grows, you know, they make money from it. Right. But then, you know, if you kind of fast forward to this current group of tech founders and investors and whatever, um, you know, think about, you know, we often talk about, um, you know, Steve jobs and, and uh, Microsoft and Bill Gates and all these folks. Right. 
but one of the really kind of defining groups of people in this early kind of internet era of tech founders is the PayPal mafia, right? The group of mainly dudes that was involved in PayPal. And that's people like Elon Musk and Peter Thiel, Max Levchin, uh, David Sachs, of course, people might be familiar with all of no these relation. folks. No relation. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> no relation Good to clarify. Clear. Yeah. <laughs> um, but all of these folks, um, you know, kind of have right-wing politics to some degree, right? Um, and Peter Thiel has been most um, open about that. He uh, was involved in the Stanford Review, which is kind of a right-wing newspaper at Stanford. He has long advocated right-wing politics. He tried to do the kind of, um, you know, uh, right-wing influencer thing before it was cool, published a book with David Sachs, I believe, that was full of kind of racist stuff. I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head. But so he's been involved in this for a really long the time. diversity myth, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. That's it. Yep. Um, so he's been involved in this for a really long time. He's been pushing these ideas for a really long time. Um, and I think that you've only seen the kind of tech industry become much more open about that. And, and I think that there's two reasons about it, right? I think that in part, these ideas have always been there. But then the other piece of it is that from the 1990s to now, they have become much more powerful and much more wealthy as the tech industry has boomed and taken off, right? So now they are in a different class position than they were before. Um, and so, you know, they see different things are going to help them and help them kind of retain their wealth and their power. And it's not being aligned with Democrats who want to, um, you know, who, who are okay with privatizing space and want to invest in Elon Musk's electric cars and want to praise the tech industry for kind of revolutionizing society and stuff. But it works much better for them to be close to the Republicans who they know won't tax them, who won't enforce regulations against them as they become, you know, kind of incredibly powerful and kind of shape aspects of society um, and who they can have some alignment with on the kind of of like right-wing culture war issues as they have become much more kind of involved in or interested in that um, kind of angle of what is going on. Yeah, that's a that's a good point. It's, it's the same old uh, alliance between capital and the right that's sort of always existed. And, you know, Silicon Valley is just another industry. Uh, totally. Involved. And like, I think Elon Musk is like a very obvious example of that transition, right? Like, you know, he he's kind of, he always had some degree of right-wing ideas, you know, um, who was it? Julia Black uh, at, at Insider reported on how she spoke to a source and like back in the uh, early 2000s, he was talking about his interest in kind of um, population uh, kind of uh, issues and, and birth rates and all this kind of stuff. And this kind of comes out of eugenic thinking and racist thinking and all this kind of stuff. And he's just become much more explicit about it. But for a while, he was kind of praised as a liberal hero because he was doing the electric cars and he was doing the space stuff and blah, blah, blah. Um, and, the, you know, the Democrats were happy to praise him for that and to make him the kind of figurehead of Silicon Valley, especially post Steve Jobs, and to say, like, this is kind of the encapsulation of everything that we're hoping to achieve with the tech industry. And they're solving, he's solving all these real world problems and, and whatnot, right? And he's going to save us from climate change and whatnot. Um, but then, especially in the past few years, he has taken a real turn toward embracing the right. Um, you know, he worked with the Trump administration. Um, 
Um, and of course, in the past few years, people will be very familiar with the fact that he has been openly embracing kind of right wing conspiracy theories, especially as he's taken over Twitter, um, has been supporting Republican candidates um, and, and really has taken this much clearer embrace of right wing politics, fighting with Bernie Sanders over over tax policy, you know, publicly on Twitter and stuff like that. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that he just illustrates how these things have transformed. And I think that the public is just kind of catching up with where these tech people are, especially as Elon Musk has become much more open about this because he's a very recognizable figure. Um, but I think that there's a general recognition that a lot of these people at the top of these companies who have become very powerful and wealthy over the past 20 or so years um, have kind of, you know, for the most part, embraced these politics Um and are very much kind of working against uh, the common good and and what would actually be good for much of the public. Well, you mentioned Elon Musk and the interns picked up on your cue and they're already bringing out the garbage can. Oh, wow. <laughs> Luckily, you're up in Montreal, but if you were anywhere within 100 miles of DC right now, you would be able to smell this thing. It is fucking <laughs> awful. Uh, you can just take our word for it for now, Paris. I will. I'll have to avoid the DC area in future, so I don't yeah, have just to smell this. Uh, just on Friday afternoons, <laughs> be sure to avoid uh, the yeah. DC area. All right, we're gonna have to go through these kind of. Uh, that's good interns right there. Thank you. Uh, we're gonna have to go through these a little fast here because we're running out of time. So, garbage candidate number one. This is a garbage candidates tech dipshits edition. Garbage candidate number one, you've mentioned him, Elon Musk, who uh, a lot of news about Musk this week. A Washington Post investigation found that he's throttling traffic to websites he doesn't like. The delayed websites, it takes up to five seconds, which is a long time for uh, our generation here when we're surfing the net to have to wait. Short for attention spans. Yeah. Yes. Uh, websites include online rivals Facebook, Instagram, Blue Sky and Substack, as well as Reuters <laughs> Wire Service and The New York Times. Um, all of them have been. Yes, yes. Uh, these are all outlets that have previously been singled out by Musk. Uh, Musk attacked the Times for not reporting on white genocide in South Africa. And then right after started throttling uh, traffic to the website. Also, uh, Musk announcing uh, on Friday he's going to get rid of the block feature on Twitter. Um, mainly, I'm guessing because people know to block blue checkmark accounts and block advertisers on Twitter. And that's I the only way Elon. that Musk is getting his money. So he's got to do something about that. And then there's this <laughs> ongoing bullshit with Mark Zuckerberg, where Musk obviously oh is chickening out of this fight, but pretending he's not. You could go any direction. Uh, it's been quite a week for Mr. Musk. Yeah. And I, I feel like almost every week is like quite a week, right? Yes. Because yeah, he's he, pretty much nominated every week. <laughs> yeah. Yes. He, he yeah. just wants to stay in the headlines because that works for him. And it doesn't matter like what kind of vile shit he's up to. As long as he's getting the coverage, I think that's really what matters to him in the end because it makes sure that he's still relevant. It makes sure that he still kind of commands this power that comes with, you know, the position that he's in. Um, and it's terrible. <laughs> Absolutely. And we we do nominate Elon Musk uh, every week as a garbage candidate. We're trying to mix up our garbage can ceremony by doing a tech dipshits edition, which, of course, brings Elon Musk back in as a candidate. All right. Garbage candidate number two, Sam Altman, the guy behind OpenAI and ChatGPT. Uh, he's also launching a project called WorldCoin, which is some sort of crypto project that also relies on scanning everyone's irises. SK, you or Paris, you probably know a little bit more about this than me, but uh, yeah, he, yeah, he this wants guy's us a dipshit. 
absolute dipshit. He wants us all to look into these silvery orbs, have our eye scan, give up our biometric data so that we can get some crypto tokens uh, that he can probably like profit off of by, you know, doing a pump and dump like they always do in crypto. But also he claims that now it's going to make sure that we're actual real human beings and not AIs um, so we can have proof of personhood, um, which just sounds absolutely ridiculous to me. In fairness to him, this is like the first crypto project that's based on actual value, which is like everyone's <laughs> biometric data. Uh, obviously, yeah, it's, true. it's very crooked, but you, you got to hand him that at least. Yeah. Garbage candidate number three, Cruise. That's the company behind the driverless taxis in San Francisco, Austin, and Phoenix. Ugh. On Thursday night, a Cruise car crashed into an emergency vehicle in oh, San Francisco. Jesus. The company's looking into it, it says. Uh, there's videos of Cruise cars driving into wet concrete, videos of them driving into construction sites, blocking intersections. This company's a mess. <laughs> <laughs> it's terrible. It's a division of General Motors. It's their kind of play for the mm. autonomous vehicle, uh, you know, kind of push, right? That was supposed to be everywhere by now and then uh, hasn't really worked out. And so these companies, Cruise and Waymo, are trying to really make it in San Francisco and a few other cities, but most prominently San Francisco. People in the city are really pushing back because, as you said, there are so many problems with this service and they're acting like, you know, it's wonderful and great and working yeah. perfectly when it's not. Um, and there are, are a bunch of people who are pushing back against this who are putting cones on the top of uh these vehicles to disable them <laughs> Got to. so you know the cruise more... resistance cruise exactly more power to them keep it up make sure that these things get banned all right it, uh it, finally the uh tesla, real quick sk we got two minutes i know i'm sorry but the tesla self-driving cars had problems crashing into emergency vehicles too i had to say that yeah yeah all right garbage can number four brian johnson this is that guy who's trying to de-age himself spending millions every year infusing himself with his son's blood all to look like a fucking weirdo i don't know if you've seen this guy but he looks like <laughs> hell uh all right all right who's going in we've got musk altman we got Cruz. we got brian johnson is anybody leaning in any specific direction here mm. I feel like Musk gets the treatment pretty often and, and we need to yeah. stop giving him the accolades. That's um, right. Good idea. I, I feel like I feel like I'm leaning toward the cruise vehicles. I am too. Let's I do it. Them. Cruise, you are going in the garbage can. Oh, oh, oh no, <laughs> an emergency vehicle on the way into the garbage can and now Yeah, we, we have didn't to... even have to put it in the garbage can, it just drove into a garbage can. <laughs> God. That is the show. Thank you for listening. Especially thank you to Paris Marks for joining us. Again, the host of the Tech Won't Save Us podcast. Find it wherever you listen to your podcast. Also author of the book Road to Nowhere. Also follow Paris on Twitter. Paris Marks, is that it? On yeah, and, and all the other new social medias that <laughs> there it is. we have to use. <laughs> Thanks so much. It's been a real pleasure. Thank it has. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. We're here in D.C., so you don't have to be.